0: With more than 500 programs a year, there's never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit CommonwealthClub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: I am so excited for this evening to talk to one of my favorite thinkers, Sherry Turkle. And uh, what a joy and pleasure. And we we have both wrestled with the issue of humanity and technology and when does it nourish, when does it deplete, and what we need to do about it. And so I just, I have to, I read your book and I just loved it. Look at all these (laughs) post-its. It's like, but it's so great when you have someone that you've known for so long and you've seen their own evolution and thinking. And, um, there's so many beautiful symmetries in our work. Um, and we, we decided beforehand that we would kind of talk. or interviewing each other, but that we would kind of go over four themes that are interesting to us. So, um, well, first I will, I will ask you, Sherry, um, how did you see the politics of technology evolve? I mean, you've had a front door seat at MIT since the beginning, but how have you seen it evolve?
0: Well, when I first came into this business, um, I was interviewing hackers on the uh, West Coast who had a high who were who were personal computer users before there were personal computers. They were bringing bits and pieces of memory over to each other's houses to build um, the early personal computers at home. And they started the Home Bureau Computer Club and they were really um, computer utopians because their idea was um, that um, computers would be a kind of great leveler and a great democratizing force. And um, uh, they were... Um, They had things called computer fairs, which really were um, an extension of the countercultural movement of the 60s. So if you looked at computer culture snapshot of 1976, when I sort of first got into the hobbyist game, um, these were people who had a utopian vision of how people Mm -hmm. grabbing control of information and grabbing control of knowing how to program um, would really change the um, uh, power relations in this country. And then gradually and much to, I can't say much to my surprise because um, that was a pretty utopian, utopian dreams, you know, usually don't go someplace to die, but gradually As this thing became big business, uh, one by one, those early dreams, um, you know, got turned into corporate realities that took it in a very different direction. So now people uh, are fighting against big corporations and the corporate culture, of course, of computing has become a surveillance culture and is no longer associated uh, in any way, uh, in my view, with the left.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I mean, when you were first talking about the hobbying, I mean, I had an Apple IIe in the early 80s. So I was one of those kids with my brother, super into it and um, dreaming of when computers would be connected. But I mean, when you were talking about the utopian um, era, uh, I was thinking of the 90s, the early 90s when I was first founding the Webby Awards. And our dream was that here's this open democratized platform that every will connect people and ideas in this completely new way. And and like you said, it was going to be the equalizer and, and there wouldn't be any centralized corporations taking control. And I remember it was like the late nineties and it was right before one of the Webby awards when the advertising model And the, we're going to sell your data model and we're going to glue your eyes to the screen. I mean, I just remember that expression, which sounded so horrible to me. Like, I don't want anyone gluing anything to my eyeballs or anything around my brain. But that was like, that was the lingo. We got to, is it a sticky sight? Are you going to glue their eyes? And which kind of sounds like a horror movie, which of course it has become because um, there was a great line that I was reading about in your book. It's like, what's the ultimate goal of this technology? and the when the those original days of this is going to be the medium that's going to connect the world in this new way and then the money came in and it it changed everything. I mean I, I still I'm a I'm an optimist, which is an optimist and a pessimist at the same time because I still believe I believe in both humanity and I believe in the power of the web but I I think it's going to take a lot of courage from people to do their own self-regulation, which I wrote about in my book, and also governments to and tech companies do some regulation. And actually, I know this wasn't on our original list, but what do you think it's going to take um, to get some reining in of this pervasive power that the tech companies have over our data? I mean, I'd love to hear what, what, What do you think the possible scenarios to rein the situation in?
0: Well, the first thing it's going to take is a major change in attitude. And this is something that I've really done a lot of research on, really at the level of, you know, how people think about this. Because over and over I've heard the following line in one way or another, that the horse is out of the barn. Right. It's too late. You know, it, 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 maybe if we have understood about the surveillance society, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but now it is too late. And my favorite line, you know, every author has like a favorite thing they've written that they spent, you know, two weeks polishing. Yes, yes. Massaging, massaging. Massaging and polishing. <laughs> my favorite line in all of my work is something that I wrote for a TED Talk. And it is, just because we grew up with the internet, we think the internet is all grown up and it's not. Mm. We are in Mm. early days. So the first thing and the most important thing is that we all stop thinking that we are dealing now with a mature technology. Facebook is mature. It's finished. It's a mature company. Google, a mature company. Mm -hmm. These are incredibly rich, powerful companies, but these still, the internet is still, we have to think of it in terms of hundreds and hundreds of years where we are. This is still a technology in its infancy, And I don't think we want a technology that is monitoring us the way, you know, in the surveillance society that we're living in, because you cannot have a democracy without privacy, and you cannot have intimacy without privacy. Intimacy, democracy, privacy, these are in a kind of golden triangle. These are in a golden relationship Mm -hmm. that we we need to fight for. So we need to criticize this and see this as really the not too late, horse not out of the barn, and the fight for our future.
1: I love that. And I I have this section in my book that I wrote about, which I had so much fun writing, which is like that the internet is in its teenage years, because we don't have the prefrontal cortex attached yet. So it's like, there's every, it's like a car driving in all these directions. It's amygdala. It's like desire, novelty, you know, just dopamine hits, and there's no prefrontal cortex that's going, actually, think about what you're doing. This will live forever on the internet. Why are you doing that? You know, and that that there is this room. And and I think, I think you and I both get to that, even though we both kind of celebrate and critique the tech. But at its core, I mean, ultimately, I believe in humanity. And ultimately, I believe we can tech our way out of this because this is about what we're creating. If technology is an extension of us, how do we create more of the world that we want? And we saw on January 6th, I mean... Whenever anyone was surprised by what we saw, I'm like, are you surprised? That's the end game of all that disinformation and the manipulation of advertisements and information. That, that's what it looks like when it comes out of the web in this really distorted way. And I actually thought that was a wake-up call for really actually finally having some regulation and really rethinking how we're using it. Um, and And also, I'd love, you know... <laughs> Being a woman in the tech space. I mean, we are also those unicorns in that way, too, because I think early on, we were always the only women in the room often. And I mean, certainly in my early days, at the Webbies and with you at MIT. And um, I, I, I don't think it's a surprise at all that there's this big reckoning in
0: tech and gender right now. I mean, I think I tell a great I, story. I tell a great so, story in my book. Where I'm an I'm an assistant professor at MIT. I mean, I've gotten to be an assistant professor at MIT. Steve Jobs, it's 1981. He's coming in with the Apple II, and I'm and he's had this incredible insight, which was an insight I had, it was really, you know, what allowed me to have my career that the computer is not just a tool, but as you and I share this insight too, Tiffany. It's a, it's an intimate machine. It's a Rorschach, it's a it's a powerful. Um, uh, emotional connector. He's had this insight, but instead of asking me to come to any meeting with him, I'm asked to make him a vegetarian dinner. So oh. I spend a day...
1: <laughs> I know that story. I, I was like...
0: Oh. I spent the day from Steve Jobs' visit to MIT cooking vegetarian, which is like, this is not my forte anyway. <laughs> and then he walks in, and I've, I've assembled, like, everybody, a who's who of computer science at MIT. He walks in, he looks at my food, and he says, this is the wrong kind of vegetarian, oh, and he walks gosh. out. And the interesting thing, the reason I tell the story and the reason it's it's so to the point of, you know, women and where we were and where we're going, is that at the time, I didn't even... I, w- I didn't even expect to be invited mm. to a meeting with Steve Jobs. I felt lucky to be invited to cook his food as mm. a young professor. So, you know, in some ways, writing a memoir of being a woman during this period is kind of a time capsule because I was so honest.
1: You know, you were so honest in the book. I love that. I loved how candid capsule you were
0: of how, yeah, knew it is that women are invited Mm -hmm. into this space. Well, not only, I'm so
1: glad you told that story because I think there is an element here that going back to even the idea of when the internet changed, it was when they were trying to glue our eyeballs to the screen. And I often think that if more women and mothers were programming, the very last thing we would ever do is take away eye contact from our children because mothers so intimately know you're breastfeeding, you're making eye contact. You're trying to read your child. You're making eye contact. That's like your greatest tool as a mother is what is my child? What are they thinking? What are they feeling? How can I connect with them? And I do think, I mean, the fact that the majority of these tools were created by, by white men who um, were not thinking about that. And I'm so excited about this next generation of women and more diverse voices and thinkers creating these tools because I really don't think um, that mothers would create a technology that took the eyes completely, the eye contact away. Well, you know, Um, I
0: think they wouldn't have created it, but one of the most upsetting, you know, my career um, began with a very positive spin on the internet. I mean, I, I, was very. Me too. <laughs>
1: I was Webby's, yes. Yeah. yeah. I
0: mean, I think that's been another thing that, that, that we have really in common is that mm-hmm. the, um, uh, that we both began by seeing these extraordinary possibilities uh, yeah, the potential. in my case for identity play online. Um, and then I began to see, for example, women breastfeeding their baby holding a phone, a phone and not yeah. looking at the baby, but looking at the phone. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it wasn't until alone together in 2011 with the phones really in the culture that I became, you know, I was no longer going to be on the cover of Wired magazine. I was, you know, I was off yeah. that. And, and now I really took, had a position as a technology critic because I was studying women who, against all of their instincts, were, right. were not looking at their babies as they breastfed them. And more than that, were in the park with their somewhat older children, ignoring their children when the children mm-hmm. were coming to them, play with me, look at me, look at me on the slide, and had eyes on their phone so to me the yeah. the, the damage the technology began to do really had to do with our taking our eyes off each other and mm-hmm. stopping stopping us inhibiting us from giving each other the full attention where empathy is born and that really is where Tiffany's work and mine you know come to that intersection where she yeah. says okay let's just accept that that's what technology does and let's figure out ways to take a break. You know, let's figure out yeah. some practical ways to take a break because there's no getting around it, if that's what technology does.
1: Yeah. And I feel like I, you know, I'm a, I'm a cultural Jew. I'm not a religious Jew. Um, but we also share that in common. Um, but I think when I started embracing and rethinking what Shabbat meant, which is a day of rest. And what is rest? You know, it's a 3000 year old idea. And I had this very dramatic year, you know, where I lost my dad and my daughter was born within days. And it was like, how are you living your life? I don't want to be staring at screens all the time. And I feel it's actually, it was like one of those moments where I really wanted to change what I was doing. And my family, my husband's a professor of robotics at Berkeley. He's obviously very into tech too. And we have two daughters now, but we decided 11 years ago to turn off all screens one day a week and for what we call our tech Shabbats. And it was literally, it was the best thing I have done. And it helps me see, you know, one day a week, we're completely living analog and we're eating around a table. There's not a screen in sight and we're connecting in this very deep way and laughing more and all of these things that I love eating good food and napping and reading in a different way. But I think something that you said, cause you know, I've, I've made a lot of films about, you know, empathy and how do you nurture it and the neuroscience of why we do things. And you have to create the space to work on these things. You, you have, and for me that it's having that one day every week where I connect with myself, cause I do some of my best thinking and writing and I, connect to my family and I feel so present and I think going back to the analogy of the teenage internet brain is that it's so all over the place and I feel like I get to still the noise still the amygdala primal urge network that hijacks my brain or tries to and I get to reset look inside and look at what matters. And I think um, that's going back kind of to the self-regulation, because it's hard to do in this world. It's actually not that hard to do, but people are so surprised that we do it. Um, But I was actually curious, do you do, like, what practices do you do that keep it in check, the usage in
0: check? Um, I have different practices. Um, I, um, first of all, never use my phone as an alarm clock. My yeah, phone I never know. comes yeah. into my bedroom. Um, and that, for me, is part of a larger practice of what I think of as sacred spaces. Yes. Um, yeah. That, to me, the dining room table, mm-hmm. the bedroom, um, the place where I meditate, um, anything having to do with eating, sleeping, places where I'm having a deep conversation, um, places where I'm working. Um when I'm working on my on a book or, or a paper, uh, I can't be distracted. So I, I think the most, my most important insight, and this is something that Tiffany and I both write about, is that when you're distracted, every study shows that when you're distracted, it takes you 23 minutes to get back mm-hmm. emotionally, cognitively to where you were before you answered your phone or looked at a text or whatever you did none of us can afford those 23 minutes. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's just too much time for me to try to remember where I was in a sentence. So, oh, yeah. um, so I, I define sacred spaces really quite seriously. And if I'm writing, um, you just can't reach me. You just can't text me. You can't find me. I, I'm not available to be interrupted. Mm-hmm. And then I have times in the day where I am available. So I'm very um, compartmentalized in how i in how I live in how I live my life Food preparation times really anything around the preparation of food when I'm with the people I love and I'm preparing food, the eating of food, the cleaning up anything around a meal, anything around a conversation um, mm-hmm. studies show my classic study uh, is that if, you have, if you're having lunch with someone and you have a phone turned face down and turned you off. You won't focus. Yeah, you're not there. You're not 100%. percent empathic there. with the other person. You cannot. You, it's just you lose empathic contact with the other person. Well, well you know, yeah, when we,
1: when, <laughs> when I had my film studio, which we, this year, you know, but we, when we were all at the office, because actually we did work remote a lot. We went in twice a week where my whole team was there. And for a while there, people would have their phones on silent. But of course, you hear the vibration. And it was like a vibration orchestra. And I was, and I, you know, read that study too. And I was like, do you know that just seeing your phones on your table on vibrate, on silent mode, are distracting me? And we're not able, we're only here two days a week together. So I said, can everyone, and there was a film studio rule like everyone's phones in their bag. You can go out and check it as much as you want and you take a bathroom break, but don't show us that you're checking it because when somebody pulls out their phone, it's very much like a yawn, like one person does it. And then it gives this permission for everyone to kind of tune out also. So it was really interesting when we made that um, boundary. And I, I, we do that too. We have no screens at the table. And then our tech Shabbats, we always have people over and this whole year at a distance outside, but we still did. And the conversations are so much better. And you know, there's no phones anywhere. We always remind our guests, you know, we don't use technology here on our texture bots. And it's um it's such a such a different kind of conversation. And then I just find I think differently without I mean it's a very alluring, tempting device that Steve Jobs made. <laughs> and um I wonder what he would think. <laughs> but I think that um going back to your compartmentalized, let's talk about that for a second. Cause I What I think is the brilliance of Shabbat from an intellectual perspective is that it's all about time management. It is saying for actually for six days, you're going to work and one day you're going to have complete joy and rest. And you're going to do all the things that give you pleasure and fill your soul and time management. I mean, the promise of technology back in those early days that you and I were both so hopeful is that it blurred every boundary. You could work from the beach. You could work from the bedroom. You could, you don't want, but now we've discovered you don't want to work from the beach or the bedroom. Like you need to create. And I love how you called it these sacred spaces. And I have all these, it's funny. I, I do all these interventions. I, do, I also don't have my phone in the bedroom and I write in my journal when I wake up and I, I, I do all these things at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. And for for dinner. It's just dinner for us where it's like there's no screens. But um how much better it is to actually put some boundaries back. Like this I think we all saw and actually we got a question here and I should remind everyone that anyone that has a question for us you can put it in the chat and it'll be funneled through us. But one of them is during the pandemic, I think the biggest common thing I was seeing is what day is it? It's so blurry. What is there's no boundaries and we lived with that for a year and it's not so great. I think we, and I'm so excited to get into this part of the conversation with you because here we were talking about all the effects of when you're living through the screen. And then we all got put into this forced experiment of you can't leave your house. You're gonna work, play, everything on the screen. And how did that work out for you? And I would love to hear your thoughts and I have some on the subject, but what do you? how do you think that's going to evolve the way we use it when we emerge and what insights did you have like during this year? Right.
0: Well, um, the way we were asked to use our screens was exactly in the wrong way. We we were forced to use our screens for our most intimate connections Mm -hmm. because we had, it was the only thing we could do. We were forced to use our screens to say goodbye to our dying parents Mm. or dying children. I mean, we were, screens became better than nothing in the most extreme circumstances. So Mm -hmm. um, it's very important that we not take what happened to us during the pandemic and make too many, um, you know, like, I want to say, generalize too much about it because no one, the most technologically, you know, gung ho person would never have said, Oh, I know, I have a really good idea. Let's have the farewells of dying people be on iPads. Like that's a real you know, let's try let's, let's try that. You know?
1: <laughs> right.
0: I mean, we did things, we did things with technology that really were um, they, they were the best we could do. But just because we now have that image in our head that we can have every meeting on a screen and we can do everything on a screen and we can do telemedicine and we can do psychotherapy and we can do psychoanalysis. We did that because it was all that we had. So I think Mm -hmm. the first thing we need to do is kind of step back and take a reset because with technology, in my research over decades, the pattern is that better than nothing somehow becomes just better than anything. Mm. So like to take a stupid example, my, I got my grandma a robotic pet because she's allergic to dogs. And then four months later, a robotic pet is better than a dog Because it will never die, and my grandpa died, and I can't stand the idea that my grandmother will ever know another loss. Mm -hmm. So this eight-year-old found a way to turn better than nothing, she's allergic, into better than anything that life could ever deliver. A a creature that will never die. Mm -hmm. And... There's something about the way in which we're starting to talk about the post-pandemic use of technology, where people are trying to say, Well, this was so great during the pandemic. We had so few meetings during the pandemic. We we, you know, we did education this way during the pandemic. We could we could, you know, bring that forward. And I just think it's very important to step back and say, look, just because we did something when it was better than nothing doesn't mean that it's better. Let's just step back and take a breath and really ask for the first time, what technology serves human purposes? How do we want to use technology to serve human purposes? So I think it's an enormous opportunity.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the best moments were my 11 year old coming down the stairs and being like, Oh, I just want to go outside. I've been on zoom school all day. And just seeing her with delight, meet her friends at the park, you know, with masks, but like so excited to go outside. And I think it was like, you know, the force feeding of something that they thought they wanted so much. And, and I, so I think, and I know personally, I mean, when I am with my friends or family in person, it's like my heart beats faster. And I'm, I'm so feel the energy of just being with another human that my greatest hope is that when we end this like social desert, that we're going to appreciate being with one another in a whole new way, and we'll put our frigging phones away, and that people will finally see each other and value it in a whole new way, because they were deprived of that for so long. So that's in my aspirational time. And you know, Oh, go ahead.
0: No, I just, I just wanted wanted to remind Tiffany that before we started, because I haven't been as good as she has been, but before we started this conversation, the person who's helping us with the tech reminded both of us that in order for it to look, <laughs> as we were looking at each other, at I camera. should look because I was the one who wasn't being good. I should <laughs> look at the green light and at the camera on my computer not a Tiffany on the screen. In other words, in order to give the, the audience, illusion, the illusion, the impression yes. that I'm making eye contact with Tiffany for an hour, I should really look at nothing. And mm-hmm. I think that this metaphor, that in order to give Tiffany the illusion that I'm making eye contact and being empathic with her, I should actually see her not at all. I'm doing that now. I should see her not at all, not see the musculature on her face, not look at the flicker in her eye, see nothing about how she's responding to me. In other words, have zero empathic, get no information in order to be empathic is my metaphor for this year on Zoom. I could, I couldn't agree could with you more. Agree I mean, me, but, but yeah <laughs> I'm looking at a green light, and I'm yeah. fooling her into thinking that something's happening. Nothing's happening.
1: Right? No, no. I, I think that's what Zoom fatigue is. I have felt the same. Like whoever invents something, a camera in the screen, so we can be looking at each other, is going to be a very successful. If they, because it, I think whenever. It, when everyone says they feel so drained from Zooms, I'm like, of course you do, because you're having quasi eye contact for hours. Full frontal fake eye contact. <laughs> like,
0: it's so awkward. I know. I've- you're not even because you're looking at, you're not even because in order to give you the feeling I'm looking at you, I literally am looking at <laughs> nothing. I'm sure I, mean, I
1: can't wait till we can that's, <laughs>
0: when this is over we're gonna like have a conversation we get to look at each other for an hour. <laughs> no, but i mean i'm literally it's a performance i mean talking about simulation i mean i'm a real yeah. person and i'm a very empathic person and on top of that i'm like trained for years and years and years <laughs> to like be able to like read things and eyes and body language so on top of my like temperament I have all this school all this psychoanalysis school (laughs) and all of that all you know all of that is is going into looking at a green light so you know at the end ideally at the end of this if I do this right I wouldn't be able to tell you what she's wearing or anything. <laughs> I, no. I know I, I'm, I'm cheating I and I'm looking here. at you occasionally I was Basically here. I saw a green light. I was good.
1: No, I am so glad you brought that up. I think about that all the time. I mean, half the time lately, I've been like, let's just have a phone call. I'll take a walk. You'll take a walk. I can't bear to, um, a full day of, of doing the fake eye contact thing. But, um, you know, one thing I wanted to, uh, that we got another question, for both of us in making decisions to set boundaries, how important it is it for people to understand our addictive relationship to our screens. And I do think it, I think it's important in the same way that, I mean, that's always why I love neuroscience and I make movies trying to show what's really happening because when you see the science or you see what's happening inside of you, I think it, you know, you know you're on the screen too long, but somehow when you see, you see it, it helps, you know, it's like acknowledging the problem, like to understand that you're on the screen too much. If you understand why you're on the screen too much, because there's thousands of engineers and scientists and psychologists that have designed this to keep you glued to the screen. That's one step. And then also to see what's happening to you. And I think the great question of our age is always going to be to be able to identify when do when does a screen experience nourish you? Because I have had those during the pandemic for sure. And when does it drain you? And I think we all know that feeling when you've been on social. I mean, I am on Instagram. I am on Twitter. I make films. I put them out, books. You, know, you have to communicate your ideas out in some channel. Although my email list, which is interesting, is really the only direct way because the algorithms are manipulating every other social media platform. But anyways... But I think that you need to understand why you keep looking at the screen. And then I think that's the the first step to go, you know what? I don't feel so great when I'm on it all the time. Or I know my kids are saying, mommy, come play with me or let's go out. And you're on a screen that I think all of those steps are necessary to actually make a plan and say, you know what? I have agency here. And I'm going to do one day a week or I'm going to do like what Cherry said before I go to bed when I wake up. How do I create my own boundaries? And I, I would love to hear what you have to think about that, Cherry, too, about understanding the addictive relationship.
0: Well, I agree with everything you've said. And I would add just one other dimension to it is that some of the most heartbreaking interviewing I've done is with teenagers who would say to me when I try to introduce the idea of the way in which their internet surfing is the product for for a company like facebook the way we're being Mm -hmm. surveyed and sold in bits and pieces they would say who would care about me and my little life who Mm -hmm. would care about me and my little life and i think that along with understanding the addictive potential And the design, the way these technologies are addictive by design,
1: Mm -hmm. um,
0: use the wonderful phrase of my colleague, Natasha Scholl. Um, It's good for people to really go to school and understand the way the business model has been bought and sold as the product by design. Because that is going to be the profound change, too, in our saying enough, we need to get some of our privacy back, we need to get our politics back under control, we need to get disinformation under control, because part of it is psychological, and that's the addiction part, and then part of it is, who would care about me and my little life? Everybody, (laughs) every political party, everybody. And in order to get our democracy back, you need to attack, you need to understand both the addiction and the who would care about me and my little life part, which is everybody does. Everybody's trying to sell you and cut you up in bits and pieces
1: well, I mean, this does go to the business model. And I kind of, towards the end of my book, 24-6, I do explore that because I talk to a lot of my favorite thinkers about what is the business model? I mean, I personally, I mean, we're using email for free, Google Maps for free, 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 free. Well, it's not free because you're the, you're the product. So if somebody said to me, okay, you're using Gmail and Google Calendar all the time, would you pay 20 bucks a month? if you owned all of your data if it went to a subscription model or what if it's like a government utility i mean we need more options here like basically right now because it's so invisible to most people they're getting this free pop product which is like the garden of eden of apps and apples and all these wonderful things we're using all the time but we don't really see the back end well i do think that we did see the back end what happened january 6 was part of the back end um but i think you know another issue is of course that the technology is moving so quickly the government there's often not enough people who understand the language of what's happening to legislate it or they do and it takes so long that the technology changed by the time they come out with it so we need more translators in government and you're right we need more education for people to really understand how they're being used and and I think you need to step away from the machine one day every week because I get this perspective like it really isn't like in a movie when we go out for a walk and everyone's got their faces down I mean it's different in the pandemic like I had a different set of (laughs) concerns like when I walked in Manhattan and everyone's like staring down no one's looking up and I you know and I think now the pandemic has shifted but I imagine when things are back um, that will continue to be concerned but on this day without screens I get this You know, I walk in the world with this fresh eyes every week and every week I think about um, like, first of all, I can think without being influenced by so many other things. And we're so bombarded. Our brains, our precious brains are being so bombarded with news and other people's pings and emails and agendas that what I find just to think about anything is this on this one day where I feel like I get time for my own inner thinking, which feels very important to me. I have time to reflect. I have time to think about society. What do I want to make a film on to show what's going on here or whatever? I I don't feel like I have during the week. I I don't feel like I have that space, that mental space um, to think. So it's also about I feel like it, going back to the addiction question, it's this day of clarity, and it kind of resets me every week for the way I, I go
0: back into it with a kind of a fresh perspective. Well, um, I, want to take, I want to take Tiffany's good idea, and I want to argue that if you really do take the idea of addiction seriously, you want to take her good idea and say, okay, if I'm addicted, I don't want to not take heroin one day a week because it resets me. I don't want to not be an alcoholic one day a week. I want to use the wisdom and the clarity that I get from that one day a week as a start and say, where can I begin to create life practices? And in fact, you do discuss this in your work, so you're not giving yourself full credit. Mm-hmm. Now, where can I begin to create life practices the rest of the week where I'm using that wisdom from the one day to create- And space. how I use it. That are going to create spaces for myself and my children where I take that Shabbat idea and a sacred space idea and I bring it into the rest of the week. For example, it is really bad for students to take my work and in my life. It is really bad for students to have their phones out during class. Right. Because when the phone source came in, I had you know everybody wanted to have their phone. They were like looking at their phone. They were, I mean, they, you know, they were they put their phone in the bottom of these bucket bags. and They would be like this, and and I would, I and I finally, I you know, I I used to hold focus groups with my classes, and I said, okay, we got to talk about this. I I know yeah. you're in your mail. I mean, don't even like go if you're not pretend. Man. What yeah. is or they pretend to be having their 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 laptops open to. Uh, You know, to be like looking up some incredible quote from Durkheim and they're like, you know. (laughs) So I said, look, talk to me. What and people basically said that they it gave them such a hit, it gave them such a feeling to feel that somebody wanted them, to Mm -hmm. feel that somebody was thinking about them, and Mm -hmm. that they really couldn't go through a three-hour seminar without that feeling, once that feeling was available to them. So we just went cold turkey and people put their phones in a in the pouch in a basket. Yeah. And all of a sudden people, you know, learned that to and not just me, but at Harvard Law School and Harvard Medical School, I mean just all the places I studied when I studied the Harvard, you know, the kind of Cambridge nexus of places, that to hold a decent class phones have to be put away no longer yeah. phones and computers that you know that no you just couldn't teach with yeah you know and i think even
1: during the pandemic um you know my daughter who at high school they have a pouch and everyone would put their cell phones and of course during this pandemic year oh my gosh i mean they've got their there's so many screens and i can't wait for them to go back to school that's one of the biggest reasons because you, and even the iPads are just really big phones to me. <laughs> like, Just put those devices away. I mean, there's so much research that if you have a phone out when you're studying, when you're in class, you are not going to learn. You're not going to pay as much attention. You're not going to do as well. And yet, because it's so addictive, you have it out. And I want to go back to you about the heroin one day a week or wine one day a week, whatever it is, because I think that's where the analogy doesn't work for me because the addiction analogy, because I love using technology for getting a film out or I do a newsletter or like, there's so many ways. And I think that's about intentional
0: use of technology. And I try to be very, I was agreeing with that. I was saying, I was saying, please don't don't misunderstand me. I'm I'm a very heavy user of technology. I write with a computer 12, 13 hours a day. I mean, I'm, I'm a very heavy user of technology. I'm saying that there need to be sacred spaces where you put it away. Totally agree. And I Shabbat or not. Yeah. And actually I was curious
1: if you ever wrote. Yeah, no, I I'm glad you clarified that. I guess what I was getting to is that I think the reset that I feel on my tech Shabbat is that. I start the next week thinking I want to be very intentional with how I use it. And sometimes I fall down a rabbit hole. I'm on Twitter too much. I'm on Instagram. And I'm like, whoa, okay, intentional use, put it away. And I find actually that my writing, I do a lot of writing on my computer, but I do some of my favorite writing is actually on Saturday by hand. And there's so much research about writing by hand and reading a book versus the screen. It was a great article in the New York Times last week about you receive the information differently if you're reading a book on paper versus the Kindle. And I think this comes down to technology is this amazing tool. Obviously. I mean, I think that being intentional when you use it and when you turn it off is the big question of our time. When does it make things better? And when does it make it worse? When does it make you feel good? And when does it deplete you? And I think that the pandemic magnified that question In a really intense way. So it'll be really interesting to see how we emerge, you know, after this period where there was such an extreme use of it. Um, So I think that is going to be very interesting. And uh, I want... Oh, go ahead. I'm somebody, you say what you're going to say. And then somebody has another question. The
0: anthropologist in, um, in the empathy diaries. I talk a lot about my um, relationship with one of my mentors named Victor Turner, who's an anthropologist. And he yes. writes about certain times. Um, Cause I was very fortunate. I was a woman coming up when there weren't that many women in academics. I love I that had, part of the well, book. Had, yeah. I had male mentors, but they were quite, they, they were wonderful and, and he was one of the truly great players. And he he talks about the liminal period, this time between between. Old norms are disappearing, but new ones haven't started. And it's mm. a it's a kind of confusing, chaotic time. Mm. But it's a time where you really can get really interesting change because people are confused and they're yeah. they're not sure. And I'm And it it can be a time of great creativity. And that's really where I see us now. I'll give you an Mm. example. I did a study right before the pandemic of parents and screens and curricular stuff. And I was so discouraged because so many parents were saying, oh, you know, I've heard about this personalization stuff they have with, you know, on on laptop surfaces and and on iPads where you know, um, it'll be able to tell my my child's every keystroke and curricula will be exactly for my child and uh, the test will be exactly to my child's level and I can mm-hmm. really see how that would help. And I'm like, oh yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, oh, and the best teachers will be giving lectures to my child, not just, you know, the local teachers. And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm gonna, I think you come in with that now because I'm going to continue to study that now about the great experience your child can have with computer instruction. And you're gonna get parents saying, excuse me, would you please give my child a person? Uh, I I would like a person for my child. Yeah. Two people, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Three or four people. My child needs a mentor. My child needs Mm. someone who says, let's meet again. Let's talk. I know you.
1: Yeah. I know
0: you I care about you. I think that I think I that I see you. This, I see you. Yes. This what yeah. of technology this this screens to hear where it's broken a kind of fever about oh the technology will remember every keystroke well that could be cool. I mean no mm. not cool. Uh, could you send in a person? And I <laughs> I I I just have a feeling that as in these liminal times when, for crazy reasons, rules break, that we're, yeah. we're at a moment of possibility, Tiffany, we're at a moment of possibility where where we could say, let's use technology that makes sense to us as people. Mm. Let's Let's do that. We've never really just tried to ask that question.
1: I love that question.
0: Yeah. I think that, that,
1: and you know, I think also just to get very to the empirical of all of this, which is something you said about your students is that everyone wants to be wanted, seen, and loved. That's it. That's all. That is what we want. We want to connect. We want to be loved. We want to be seen. And so many of these tools are teasing you about that. They're not really satiating you. And actually we, we, like many got a dog during the pandemic and I've just been deeply thinking about how seen and loved everyone in my family feels from our dog. No, but I think, and there's dogs being, got adopted and dogs filled people's homes during the pandemic. And, that maybe it's going to satisfy this feeling of being loved and seen that they're going to social media and they never get sated from. And like, what is the ripple effect of that? And I'm like you where I, I'm optimistic ultimately of I believe in humanity and I believe that you believe in it. And that's what I find such a beautiful link of our work is that as much as we're trying to point out um, when not to use it and when to use it, but at our core, like humans have been through crazy technologies before and and there's always like this kind of washing machine period and then we emerge. But I think and I and I think soon, you know, we turn off our screens for tech shabbat. Pretty soon it's not gonna be screens. I mean I think there's gonna be contact lenses. I think we'll be, you know clicking blinking and to get and I could be talking to you and I'm like am I talking to Sherry is she checking your email but I would know if you were checking your email or if you were connecting with me and that soon we won't be looking down that won't be the conversation and 20 years 10 years we're gonna be there's gonna be wearables we won't even know but we'll still we'll still need to connect on a real authentic level I just I just don't think that's ever going to go away. We're always going to have to return to that.
0: I'm very, I'm very um, impressed by the fact that it's not the technology, it's how you use it. I mean, I still, um, I, in Empathy Diaries, I talk about my family's use of television. And in my family, we sat around a television and we used to have discussions and fights among about, people yeah. about what was on the television. Mm -hmm. that singer good? Was that singer bad? What about her dress? What about the Jews? What about this? Mm. Is it good for the (laughs) Jews? The the television was a a place where the Bonowitz family, we talked. The television was a Mm -hmm. time for talking and family conversation. And I remember being in graduate school and taking a media course and learning that the television was a passive media Mm -hmm. It was like I was like learning the television. was, And I I remember saying, really, my family had not gotten the memo. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember sitting back and saying, you know, it's you can train people. You can create a computer culture. That cares about privacy. If you have a culture that cares about privacy, Mm -hmm. you can create a computer culture that cares about uh, democracy, if you have a culture that cares about democracy. That's right. So, I mean, I- I want to say, amen, amen. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Preach to me, preach to me. So, I mean, this, you know, that that the business models that the computer companies admit, it may seem predetermined that those were chosen, but they were chosen because the market was left to choose what the market will choose. But that doesn't have to be just like television doesn't have to be a spectator
1: sport. Yeah. I think that's such a great point. And I, and, you know, I mean, when I was growing up in the seventies, the big concern was that TV was going to turn my brain to mush. I remember that's what, you know, and I watched a lot of bad television in the seventies and, um, and it didn't turn my brain to mush. And, and I think I, and it's funny because when you were saying like, actually, my family Shabbat table is really where we do all the big discussion of the week because it's so weird that we don't watch as much TV. And and that was a unifying thing when I was growing up. And what is the unifying thing? And every family's probably got a different unified, they wanna do sports together, they wanna to do this, but like, what's the unifying thing that you really connect? And and can you create, I mean, for me, the big challenge that I like to challenge people because I say, hey, this has really worked for me and my family and my daughter who's going off to college wants to continue doing texture bots in college. I think it's a good ritual to bake into your family's life, like whatever it is. And and in the book, I talk about if it's not a full day, maybe it's half a day, maybe it's Friday night, but how can you create a boundary where like your family, you were all like engaged in being together and exchanging thoughts about life and, and arguing and laughing. And, and that's, that's what it's all about. And I think, you know, this pandemic, what is it all about? Uh, it's all about, you are what you do all the time. And when do you feel connected? When do you feel loved, seen? When do you think the best? I mean, these are big questions that we've had a lot of time to think this year. (laughs) And I think, I think it's a really, I think it's an opportunity. I was thinking about the word pod, like everyone's using this word pod. And then last night, in the middle of the night, I couldn't sleep. It sometimes happens. And I thought, well, what, what if pod is like a chrysalis? What if we've all been in a chrysalis for a year? What's going to emerge? Like, it, it can be something beautiful and magnificent. And of course, I'm not like Pollyanna, like it's all going to be fabulous. But what, can, what analog rituals did we do during the pandemic that we want to bring forward? What technological things that we don't want to bring forward? Um, and I think those are really like everyone listening or watching, like make a little list. What did you start doing during the pandemic that felt good? And when were you on screens when it felt bad? <laughs> like it's a good starting point. I mean, what what did you like, what do you feel like the pandemic? Um, I mean, we're about to emerge. What are your. It was very clear
0: that for me, yeah. the pandemic was a way to step back and yeah. see this country with fresh eyes hmm. i think we stepped back and because we were at home and we were watching it on television and we weren't all out and distracted we saw social we saw inequality of income we saw mm. me too we mm. saw white supremacy we saw race mm. we saw the election yeah. we saw voter suppression i mean we saw I, I remember the day that I watched. I, at first, I didn't know what I was watching it was a Greek stadium and all these fancy luxury cars. And I saw Americans in fancy cars getting their first bags of food from a food bank who had never gotten food before. Mm. So I think that this, for me, what the pandemic was, was uh, anthropologists called it a dépaysement, kind of stepping out of your country to see things fresh. Mm. And I think I, love, that, I, love that. I think that is such a gift to all of us that we were given the opportunity to see yeah. our country fresh, to see ourselves fresh, to see our possibilities fresh, to see our problems fresh. And it's a reset. It is like a, a Shabbat. It's like a it's No, when you're saying these words, exactly what you're saying is
1: how I would describe my once a week feeling is like I see things differently, I see them more clearly, I reset. And actually, I loved in your book, um, The Empathy Diaries, and I loved all your books, but this one was so intimate. and, And I, oh, I just loved it. And I loved your vulnerability. And I think one thing where, again, I connected with you, there's so many things, but, you know, just this feeling of feeling like an outsider, and certainly even as a Jew, I mean, um, I'm a blonde blue-eyed Jew named Tiffany. So mostly people don't think I am at first. And th- I've always felt like an outsider in that perspective. And my whole family, they're they're it's a line of outsiders if you're a Jew. But Ken and I have always talked about that. That's a real, that's an incredible vantage point because you just you're you're outside, you're looking in, and that is an incredible viewpoint. Um Not always, because I think ultimately there's like this desire to be inside of the outside, but you get such a great view from the outside. And I love what you're saying about this year. We got to kind of outside in, look at our country, feel the issues in a very raw, new way, and look at technology. I personally looked at technology. I mean, I appreciated technology. I mean, let's just take a moment, everyone, and think, what would this pandemic have been like without the web? Just sit with that for like a good hour. Um, because it allowed us to stay connected to do this talk to stay to see loved ones to get information. And I'm grateful for that. And then I think, you know, the times when it didn't, you know, nourish, but I think uh, it's been a fascinating year and a hard year. And, but, you know, those, are you know, the growth happens in really uncomfortable times. So I'm hoping for that chrysalis that there's going to be some major growth coming out of it in a couple of months when I get my second vaccine shot. Uh, I think we're, do we have any final questions from the audience? Um, you can type them in the chat. They'll be sent over here. And Sherry, I just have to say, I just, you once said to me, well, okay, there's two things from the book that I wanted to say was, I loved your book. Um, and you were quoting um, your teacher Turner. I love the way you talk about, all the different things each of your teachers taught you and how it informed your teaching. And I, I love it when people really make those intellectual leaps of like why they do certain things. And there was one, there was one thing that he said that, you know, be open to even ideas from writers you don't agree with or thinkers. So you can find the nourishing raisins. Now I have to tell you that in my film, in bad theories, (laughs) in bad theories. Okay. I love that idea. So I'm imagining these nourishing raisins and I, when we're making films, we always say, provide enough salty nuts to like, if we're going off on science, we have to like provide a salty nut to carry them through. So I was thinking a combination of your nourishing raisins and my salty nut metaphors would make (laughs) wonderful, like, like intellectual snacks as you're creating. And then the other thing I wanted to share (laughs) was that you once said something to me that you might not remember, but it made a big impact on me. And I, we met when, uh, you know, I had just come out with this film, Connected, and I was very stressed because I was going to be away from my my daughters every weekend for, like, the theatrical tour for, like, two months. And you turned to me, and I will never forget this. You said, Tiffany, this is what I need to tell you. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. You have worked so hard on this movie, and you're getting to take it out into theaters savor that enjoyment and it was you know for a woman who I admire so much and you were reminding me to be in the moment and to not feel such Jewish guilt about being away from my kids that I wasn't going to enjoy this very hard arduous journey so I wanted to thank you publicly for giving me advice that I think about all the time when anything comes up I'm like Tiffany just enjoy it enjoy it enjoy it and so uh, thank I you always tell
0: people who finish projects and who are then <laughs> anguishing over something to say, "This is a moment you must savor. This is yes this is, things take so much time. Love this. Love." This. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to say this to you for
1: your book for your book tour. Are you enjoying it? Enjoying it? Enjoying it? Yes, are you? Appreci- I am. <laughs>
0: I'm so happy to be here talking to you. This is a, this is a this to me is a great treat, and I'm, I'm just yeah, so grateful for talking all, to all of you who are listening and hearing yeah. about the empathy diaries and 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 how it relates to Tech Shabbat and how really we, I mean, how these two women have had these different paths and come together, and I, I just think it's a great. This is a, an adventure. This is a life adventure. So yes, I'm it's very life.
1: Well, I am, just and I'm I love partner. this kind
0: profiled in the new yorker i mean this like i'm waiting for that issue to come
1: oh my gosh well
0: author porn so this is like (laughs) um
1: well i what a pleasure and uh i I look forward to seeing you in person soon but it was just we're gonna hug it was just (laughs) we're gonna hug real long i know just like get all the oxytocin flowing. i um i just love this conversation and um and to be continued, To
0: Be continued. I'm going to get my eyes up that green light now and look at you. Okay.
1: Have a great night, everyone. Have bye bye. Night. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org/donate.